The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately, history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here, we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. you Jamie I'm good Justina how are you doing I'm great I'm very excited about today's topic okay but I guess so I'm gonna be leading this episode so I guess I can start by asking do you know who Polly Murray is do you know anything about Polly Murray I do know who Polly Murray is I I know very little I know some things and I'm also worried that um, maybe the things that I quote unquote know, I know incorrectly maybe, or I have some incorrect ideas. I'm not sure. So I know that Polly Murray was a civil rights activist. Correct. I know that Polly Murray coined, or I think I know that Polly Murray coined the term Jane Crow. To talk Amazing. About. We're going to talk okay. about a little bit about Jane Crow. Yes. Okay, good. Great. I'm, I'm doing good so far. And then the other thing, the thing that I'm not exactly sure what the most current interpretation is, is on her kind of gender and sexuality. That There's some conversation about whether or not, given the language that we have today, she would be considered transgender. That mm-hmm. language, of course, didn't exist at the time. Um, and so I, I've heard conversations about that and I, I don't know what is, what is correct and what is incorrect. So thus ends my knowledge. Those are great. Those are excellent points. The last point you made brings me to kind of the first thing I wanted to discuss. So oftentimes us academics like to talk about our choice of language, right? And so this is one thing I've been thinking a lot about around Polly Murray. Um, A lot of the texts that I read in preparation for this episode refer to Polly Murray as she, just as you did. This is because when Polly Murray was alive, there was little discussion or understanding around the trans community. And I've been thinking a lot about what pronouns or how we should be referring to Murray. And so if it's okay with you, I was going to utilize, and I may make a mistake during our, you know, our episode, but I'd like to try to utilize the they, them pronouns, partially because I think they are not gendered, right? Which is kind of the beauty of the they, them pronouns. And 
allows us to not signify that we understand or are asserting either one of the genders for polymory. But I actually thought a lot about this, and I've talked a lot about this with students because so many academics are still referring to Polly Murray as she, because people referred to Polly Murray as she during her lifetime. But I think as I've talked to a lot of students who kind of made mention of the fact that the usage of they could be helpful, right? And it's sometimes even if I don't know someone's gender identity, that they haven't told me their gender identity, I'll just refer to them as they. And because we can't ask Polly Murray how they would like to be identified, if it's okay with you, I'm gonna refer to Murray as they throughout this episode. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about their gender identity and their kind of journey with their gender identity, as well as their sexuality closer to the end of the episode to kind of give a little bit of background on that. But I think there's a lot more to be discussed than what I'm going to talk about in this particular episode. So does that sound okay with you? Of course. Great. The other thing I wanted to say is that I didn't know that much about Polly Murray until the last couple of years. Like you, I'd heard a few things about them. Um, I think I was introduced to them in grad school, but recently I've been incorporating them into different courses I'm teaching, and they've been one of the most exciting historical figures to discuss with students, partially because their career is very prolific and making really serious and profound impact, but a lot of people are unaware of them. And so it's kind of exciting to talk with students who may not be aware of them, but know a lot of other people that they worked with or made impacts on. Um, and so they're definitely one of the most exciting people I've brought into my class, and I'm really excited to talk about them with you today. Does that sound okay? Shall we do it? Awesome. Let's do it. All right, cool. Anna Pauline Murray was born. We're going to start like any good biography does. <laughs> At the beginning, right? <laughs> so, yes, exactly. So, was born on November 20th, 1910 in Baltimore, Maryland. Their mother, who was a nurse, died when Murray was just three years old. This led Murray's father, who was a school teacher, to experience some emotional issues, which ultimately led Murray to move in with some of their relatives, particularly their, on their mother's side, and at this point moved to Durham, North Carolina. So has, and is often associated with North Carolina as you and I have lived in North Carolina, um, there is some work on creating memory around uh, Murray in the state, which is exciting, right? Because for a long time, people were unaware. So you can visit Murray's childhood home here in North Carolina, and there's being more discussed in terms of public history around their memory in the state too, which is cool. Do you know how old they moved? About here? three. So very young. Very oh, I see. Shortly so shortly after their mother died. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very young. From a really young age, Murray displayed intelligence and aptitude. By the age of five, they had taught themselves how to read and began devouring books. So this is a little confusing. And to be honest, I'm not perfectly aware of the education system. But Murray graduated from high school in North Carolina at the age of 15. Um, at this point, when they graduated, 
this is their long list of what would go on their college application nowadays. Okay, so they were editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, president of the literary society, class secretary, debate club member, top student, and uh, a forward on the school's basketball team. So very well-rounded student. And with this, you know, great number of accolades, Murray could have easily earned a spot at North Carolina's College for the Negroes, but they did not want to be limited by segregation. Um, so they're very aware of segregation and Jim Crow in the South in North Carolina. And so Murray wants to continue their education um, by actually doing some more extensive high school and then also prepping for college. And so in this process of trying to kind of figure this out, they asked their family if they can move to New York City to continue their high school education because I guess there was some sort of limited high school here. That's where I'm a little confused. But there was more opportunities in New York City and they had family in New York City. So they ultimately do convince their family they should do this. They go to New York and they continue their education. Shortly thereafter, they also enroll at Hunter College, which is a college that still exists in New York. They chose Hunter because Columbia did not accept women at the time and they could not afford Barnard College. Interesting note though, Hunter College at the time was a woman's college and Murray noted that they didn't really appreciate it because they saw this as another form of segregation. So this also shows Murray's awareness of not only racism, right? They were thinking about that when they were in North Carolina. Now they're in New York and they're thinking about the ways that their gender is also limiting them, right? Or their gender identity is limiting them, right? So this kind of goes to what eventually is going to become Jane Crow, right? This is something that's been impacting their lives. Murray sounds like a person that's particularly thoughtful and socially astute and aware. I mean, for particularly for their age. I think that Murray's just really stinking smart. I <laughs> like just incredibly intelligent and uh, like you said, highly aware and is really socially conscious at such a young age, right? Well, I think there there's obviously a confidence there too because Absolutely. while it's one thing to be a particular age and, and recognize things and think about how you want things differently, it's another thing to have confidence to really go out and try to achieve those things. I mean, if you think about their their childhood and some of the trauma associated with their childhood and then the ability to then, you know, really kind of go out on their own at such a young age, that's just a lot of confidence and a lot of maturity. I, I certainly wasn't there when I was that age. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Although I did move to New York not too long after 16. I will say that. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this episode. <laughs> Anyway. Well, there, there's there's a big difference between 16 and 18, though. I mean, I know it's just different. two years, but and I guess maybe that has a lot to do with the education system. And if uh, they're coming through a completely different education system, then that may explain some of it. I I don't know. I'm just it's very admirable. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's incredible. 
Okay, I don't have a ton of information, but I did find some evidence that their life in York City was pretty darn cool, partially just because of the people that they were encountering at the time, right? So this is uh, a time when Murray is being um, kind of introduced to some of the most prolific and prominent African-Americans at the time. So there are some records that Murray met or attended some sort of event in which some really, really, really important African-Americans at this time period were at in New York City, including Langston Hughes, right? The very prominent poet um, and someone who is firmly attached to the Harlem Renaissance, some of the most incredible poetry from this time period coming from them. W.E.B. Du Bois, right, one of the most important African-American thinkers at the beginning of the 20th century. Du Bois' writings are still so important to African-American history and the experiences of racial oppression in America. So Langston Hughes and Du Bois are just a few of the people that Rory is at least being introduced to during this time period. We just had a conversation, right, about how aware Murray was at this point at such a young age. And I think could you imagine, I mean, I just can't even imagine the amount of learning that you would, that they were experiencing if they're being introduced to Hughes and Du Bois during this time period. Just, it must have been so exciting, right? And this is, you know, leading right before the Great Depression. And so America is experiencing kind of the exciting time of the 20s, right? I just, I don't know. New York at this time just seems like very exciting place to be. Your love okay. of New York is definitely coming through i think we all yeah we all get a get a sense of of your appreciation for the city i love it so much it's true so like so many other americans the great depression impacted murray's ability to earn money which ultimately forced them to take time away from their schooling but they did eventually graduate from hunter in 1933. after graduating murray drifted from job to job um and they briefly joined the Communist Party, uh, USA's Communist Party, which the Communist Party post-World War II was really like a shocking thing to be a part of, right? But during this right. time period... The, the Cold yeah. War is not happening right now, is what you're saying. And I think, exactly. though, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, the, the links between some of these early civil rights activists and this time period of the Communist Party in the United States. I mean, it's not like Murray's the only individual making these sorts of decisions. This is pretty, I mean, maybe common is is the incorrect term to use, but it's not an ordinary for a civil rights activists at this time to have links to the Communist Party, correct? Absolutely. You're 100% correct. And so this is part of This is not, like you said, it's not unusual for the time period, but actually Murray didn't stay in the party that long. They resigned, noting that they found, and this is a quote, the party's discipline irksome. So they, it's, it, to me, that kind of made me think, oh, I wonder if Murray kind of felt like, oh, I'm seeing a lot of people do this. Maybe I should give it a shot. But as we know, Murray's highly intelligent, right? It's going to make decisions for themselves and kind of once was exposed didn't really feel the need to participate, right? And quickly kind of resigns from the party. All the while, 
their family was actually hoping that Murray would return to North Carolina. So in 1938, Murray decides to apply to the University of North Carolina, UNC at Chapel Hill, and applies to their sociology graduate program. Despite the fact that the university did not accept African-American students, Murray believes there is a possibility that they will be admitted. And let me explain, right? Because this seems like almost surprising to hear as people who understand segregation uh, during this time period. Although Murray was aware of the university's strict no African-Americans rules, um, they also understood their own family's history. Murray was biracial, and two of their slave-owning relatives had attended UNC. Another one served on the university's board of trustees, and yet another created a permanent scholarship for students, right? So technically, Murray's lineage was highly connected to the university's history. But despite the family's history, Murray was denied acceptance to UNC on the basis of race. Um, and this actually happened just two days after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that graduate programs must admit qualified African-American students if the state did not have an equivalent black institution, right? So in this case, there wasn't an institution that was providing graduate program in sociology. And so technically, Murray should be able to apply because they were a qualified African-American student, or they should be, you know, admitted because they were a qualified African-American student and there wasn't the equivalent somewhere else. Unfortunately, the state did promise to create a graduate program at the North Carolina College for Negroes, which did not happen. In fact, it actually, the state actually slashed the college's budget, which makes sense, right? This is 38, right? So we're still in the midst of a Great Depression. While Murray tried to convince the NAACP to take up their case. Uh, the organization feared that Murray's out-of-state residency, right, remember they were still in, in New York, would not help the case and therefore refused to actually help in, in the scenario. I think this is such an interesting moment in their life and in, in kind of the history of segregation, right, because one of the things that I find so fascinating about the story is that Murray is so aware of their lineage, right? And their connection to prominent white North Carolinians in this case, right? And is almost, I think, really utilizing that to poke holes in segregation, right? In Jim Crow laws, right? By showing how connected black and white communities were through these family lineages and histories, right? This is not that far after, this is less than 100 years after the end of uh, slavery in America. And we can see how interconnected these communities are just because, because so many people are biracial, right? Because of the history of particularly white slave owners raping slaved women, right? And so Murray has all this awareness of this lineage, and yet their, you know, African-American lineage limits them from entering spaces like UNC, right? Or that are are made for, for white people at this time. Sure. I mean, that's the whole point, though, of segregation, right? That's why so many states had, quote unquote, one drop laws and policies. 
that's that's the system working the way that it was meant to to function. This again shows what you had said earlier, right? Murray's tremendous awareness and um, ability to kind of point out these things that challenge racist ideas, right? That that existed and have existed for a long periods of time. So it takes again, I mean, it takes a lot of confidence to go against the status quo. Yeah. I mean, so again, it's one thing to notice things. It's one thing to, you know, because I mean, people were having the were having conversations around their kitchen tables about how it was wrong and about, you know, how things needed to be different. And activists, you know, of course, are strategizing and trying to figure out ways to to change. And I mean, it's just amazing that one person is is willing to to take these steps. I mean, most people, I think, aren't as confident and bold as that. Right. Takes a lot of takes a lot of chutzpah. Yeah, and I mean, even without the backing of a large institution or organization, right? At this point, they were asking the NAACP to take up this case, right? They didn't have that backing ahead of time. I, to me, I was surprised to read about that because I, I honestly thought that they would have that backing before because that would provide a layer of confidence, right? Um, to have an institution like the NAACP behind you. So yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, you're going to get another story of chutzpah right now. Are you ready? This is another great story. There's so many ready. good ones. Okay. Two years later, now we're in 1940, on a bus with a friend from New York to Durham to visit uh, Murray's family for Easter. Oh yeah. This is the Virginia story. Isn't yes, it? exactly. Okay. So yes. So they're in Virginia. They're um, moving buses, right? They're transferring buses and Murray and their friend uh, actually, when they moved to the bus, they actually sat closer to the front because the seats in the back were broken. The driver uh, asked them to move back. They refused. And I've heard stories that Murray's friend was more inclined to say, like, let's just move back. It's okay. Let's just move back. And Murray said, no, we're not doing that. And they ultimately did refuse, which led to a confrontation and their arrest. This is 15 years before Rosa Parks, right? Is this um, where they got the idea? So, no, I don't think so. I think that this, this is something that African Americans have been doing for decades, right? That buses, you know, rail cars are places where segregation had been challenged for a long time, partially sometimes because I think um, I think there's an instance in which Ida B. Wells does something fairly similar, right? Ida B. Wells, I think, wanted to be on paid for a first class seat and then was forced to sit in a smoking car on a train, which she did not like because she did not want to sit in a smoking car with, you know, mostly men, right? Um, partially could be for her own safety in that case, right? And so this is something that's actually pretty common. But I think one of the problems with our narratives around the Rosa Parks stories, of course, Rosa Parks is so important, so prolific, really important story, but it almost makes it seem as if no one had ever done that before, right? But we have lots of evidence of other people doing that. 
a very similar thing, right? And being arrested and choosing this form of nonviolent resistance as a way to show the oppression and the inequality in segregation and in Jim Crow laws, right? And that's well, one and of the other things that I think is important about Murray is that Murray comes ever so slightly before the traditional kind of civil rights movement. And that means I think a lot of their story is not, doesn't come to the surface, right? Because it doesn't fit in that kind of time period in which we talk about these forms well, of resistance. Well, and I think too, I mean, your point is a good one in terms of the fact that there had been these type, this type of resistance had been happening, but the Rosa Parks story kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the room. But I think also another element of the Rosa Parks story that most people, maybe more people are aware of it now than they used to be. But for the longest time, people thought like the story around Rosa Parks was here was this one woman who just decided one day, like, I'm not doing, I'm not putting up with it anymore. But in fact, you know, she had a lot of organizational support. So again, we have another episode of Murray kind of going off her own bat. She didn't have the support of a major organization behind her. Here is a moment of a person saying, no, I'm not going to do this. I mean, maybe rightfully so because these seats are broken, but still. You know, it it's a it, it's more of a moment as opposed to some kind of planned orchestrated event, you know? Absolutely. Later that year, so same year, Murray also becomes involved in another legal matter in Virginia when they're working with the Workers Defense League. The league asks them to help them raise money on behalf of Odell Walker, who's an imprisoned sharecropper at the time. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me on behalf of Odell Waller, an all-white jury sentenced Waller to death for killing the white man whose land he farmed. Waller alleged that he shot the man in self-defense, um, and his case was gaining some attention. Uh, and Murray came in to kind of help raise money and form some more, um, or bring some more attention to the case. Um, this is a case in which also... Murray uses something called confrontation by typewriter as a way to gain attention. So confrontation by typewriter is associated with Murray and Murray's career um, because they used their writing skills, which were really impeccable writing skills, unsurprisingly, to point out injustices and would write letters to um politicians and other people that were uh, in charge of things that they were disappointed about, right? So one of those people, so let me back up a little. There's a book, uh, it's called The Firebrand and First Lady. It's by uh, Patricia Bell Scott. Um, and this book kind of talks a lot about um, the relationship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Holly Murray. So they had a friendship. Um, and this friendship actually became, or this friendship started about two years before the Waller case, after Murray wrote an angry letter to FDR accusing him of caring about fascism abroad more than white supremacy at home. So after this, Eleanor responds and ends up inviting Murray to have tea. And so this becomes kind of the first of many 
uh, visits and the beginning of kind of a long friendship through letters that they that they have, which is kind of I mean, this is it's another incredibly amazing component of Murray's life, right? Murray ends up through their excellent writing skills and their use of, you know, writing letters ends up forming a friendship with the first lady. That is no small feat, especially as you know, during this time period, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt were getting so many letters written to them, right? This was a very common thing to do. People asking the president and the first lady to help them and for very personal reasons, right? For money to feed their families. Um, there's tremendous primary sources from people, just ordinary Americans writing to the president and the first lady. So the fact that Murray's letter stood out and then created this friendship is this incredible thing. Anyway, that's a bit of a side note, but I think a really important one. Well, it's fascinating too, because Murray has all these famous friends. And yet I think, you know, if you did a man on the street sort of thing, most people will have definitely heard of Eleanor Roosevelt, W.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, these people, but you'd say, do you know Polly Murray? Going to guess they would say no. I I think the vast majority, I mean, I've taken some polls in my classes, um, just asking, you know, were you exposed to Polly Murray before this class? And I would say well over 50% had not heard their name before. So I think you're right to say that. This is this is about the stories we tell, right? Exactly. Why some stories are told and others are not. Right. And I think that, I don't know. I mean, so many examples here are showing why we need to talk about Murray, right? So prolific, so prominent. Uh, and there's more. Okay, so. That's a side note, but also during this time period, while Murray was working with the Workers' Defense League, they gave a speech that both Thurgood Marshall and the Howard, Howard Law professor, Leon Ransom, was in the audience. They were completely taken by uh, Murray's ability to give a emotional speech about the Waller case and urged them to apply to Howard Law. And Marshall even wrote a letter of recommendation. Thurgood Marshall wrote Murray a letter of recommendation. I mean, another kind More of- More famous connections, yes. Exactly. Holly exactly. Murray was so well-connected. I mean, well-connected in a way that I don't know of many other historical figures being connected. Yeah, I could not agree more. So- Unsurprisingly, Murray is accepted, uh, and they enter with really the intent, and this is a, a quote I found, the intent of destroying Jim Crow, okay? So they are concerned- Small goal. Small goal. Yeah. No Small big deal. Goal. Exactly. Like me, getting up every morning saying, I will, you know, work <laughs> out today. <laughs> exactly. Very, very similar. Very similar goals. Exactly the same thing. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So at Howard in the early 40s, Murray is subjected to sexist treatment. On the first day, one of her professors announces to the class that he did not know why women would want women would want to go to law school, a comment that both humiliated Murray and guaranteed 
as they were called that quote, I would become the top student. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that, but it's so Murray, right? It's so the confidence, right? Like, okay, you say I shouldn't be here. Well, then I'm going to become the best person here. This experience would lead them to begin discussing what they called Jane Crow, right? Which you talked about at the top of this episode. So in our current understandings around multiple oppressions, we often use the term intersectionality, which is a term that was coined by another legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw, to discuss the ways that um, different identities come with different forms of oppression, and people can experience multiple forms of oppression based on their identities, right? So this is in the case of Polly Murray, right? Polly Murray was treated both oppressively because they were a woman and they were black, right? And so they were talking about how in different spaces they're experiencing sexism and other spaces they're experiencing racism, but they're also experiencing both of those things at the same time too, right? And one of the things that I've been thinking about is we typically talk about intersectionality as as a way of referring to this, but there's so many other people, including Polly Murray, who talked about this kind of multi-layered oppressions long before Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, which is really important, right? Frances Beale talks, who we should maybe do an episode on Frances Beale one day, but talks about it called multiple jeopardy. This is not necessarily a new concept. It has many different names because people were experiencing this and talking about this for centuries, right? While being at Howard, that kind of component of sexism was just very much illuminated, right? Because they were around the vast majority of African-American men who were challenging, why should they have a space there alongside African-American men. We're going to keep talking about Howard. So while at Howard, Murray wrote a paper arguing that segregation, this goes back to what I said about their desire to destroy Jim Crow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to that. So this paper was arguing that segregation was designed to humiliate and degrade, and that separate facilities were harmful because they eroded the self-worth and psychological health of Black people. Consequently, Murray argues, segregation ultimately violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So this paper was deemed by some of their peers as kind of laughable, but actually... <laughs> When they went to argue Brown v. Board in 54, so over a decade later, they went back and looked at this paper. So this paper did help destroy Jim Crow. So ultimately, their desire to destroy Jim Crow happened. Isn't that crazy? Yes. It's crazy. How do we not know this? I don't know, but I mean, it's uh, a lesson that it is it's good. Set set goals. Set goals. <laughs> we learn nothing else from Polly Murray. Don't be afraid to set goals. Absolutely. Oh. Mm -mm. Absolutely. Okay. So they apply to Harvard uh, for graduate school, and I've also heard that they, they don't get in. Yes, that's correct. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> You're fine. I just, I finally kind of knew something. I was like, ah, 
<laughs> I've heard I that they actually were the top student in the class, which ultimately every top student at Howard was supposed to get a space in graduate uh, at Harvard Law's graduate program. Um, automatically, right? It was like a system that was happening as they were expecting all of those graduates to be men. Correct. Exactly. So in the same way that Murray was not in the same way, I guess. So Murray was rejected from UNC on the basis of race. And now they're being rejected from Harvard law on the basis of their sex. So ultimately, they did continue their graduate work in law, um, but they did it at Berkeley. So they moved to California for a little while and they completed that education at Berkeley. So despite this extensive education, because of Murray's race and sex, they found it really difficult to find work. And that's, I mean, this part, I, I when I learned about this, I, I got... It, it's just heartbreaking, right? Because there's so much effort that's going into not only attending these prestigious institutions, but then, but also being the top student. And then because Murray. Think about, think about, sorry, but think about no. too, the, the emotional energy that goes into that also, because it's, it's really hard to get through intensive programs just as you said, kind of because of the the academic rigor and all of that, but it's also taxing in terms of the toll that it takes on you mentally and emotionally. And if you think about the fact that they are in those situations um, and kind of not only having to deal with the the mental struggles of of kind of tackling the rigor it's also having to deal with the the discrimination the yeah. um you know pervasive oppressive discrimination yeah. the dealing with the fact that people don't want you there and i i would imagine that Haas, maybe you could even speak to this i don't know but that ha environments potentially became more hostile the more success that they had. So if you're attending this law school and everybody says, what is this woman doing here? This is a, this is a male space. This is a space for men. Women have absolutely no business being here. And then that person doesn't just stay. They're not bullied out. They not only do they stay, but they excel and they do better than all of their male peers. I don't think I, I'm just going out on a limb here, but I would assume that that doesn't, you know, make you more welcome. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I can't speak to the specifics around their experiences other than the few that I noted, right? The the kind of hostility that they experienced on behalf of that male professor at the very beginning, right? It's just got to be, it's just got to be so hard. So you've you've figured out how to keep it together to, to not only just kind of survive in these environments, but to, to excel. You right. Know? And then to, I don't know, I'm just in awe of all the emotional energy that it would take 
to really kind of fight, 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 and then come out. And I mean, the, the struggle has, the struggle continues because doors are not opened the way that they most certainly were for individuals with the same sort of educational background that were men or white or both. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, if Murray had a different gender and sex identity, their career would have looked, I mean, they would have probably been able to get a job anywhere. Right. And they're scraping by trying to find jobs, which is, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Right. So they are scraping by low paying jobs in 48, 1948. Still, that's the other thing, right? This feels so, when I talk about Murray, sometimes I keep thinking it's later because they're always ahead of the curve, right? They're doing things before everyone else, right? Which is another reason that they, I think, are not part of the stories we tell, but they're also forced to constantly struggle, right? If if they came 10 years later, they would have been at least probably had some more opportunities. Just 10 years, right? If this was 58 instead of 48, right? Anyway, that's probably, you know, that's not how history works. But I do think it just proves the point that Murray was always ahead of their time. Always. Always. There is a cool job, though, that they did get that I actually had not heard of until I did the research for this episode. So this is kind of interesting. In 1948, the women's division of the Methodist Church approached Murray with a question. They opposed segregation and wanted to know for all of the 31 states where their church had parishes, um, when they were legally obligated to adhere to segregation laws or when it was merely custom, right? So they wanted to kind of have this kind of clear roadmap. Where are segregation laws actually laws or where are they custom that they could easily break those laws or break those customs, I should say. If they paid Murray for their time, they wondered would they write kind of this explanation of segregation laws in America for them? So the Methodist Church expected a pamphlet, okay? (laughs) Murray produced a 746-page book titled States, Laws on Race and Color that exposed both the extent and the insanity of American segregation. The ACLU distributed copies to law libraries, black colleges, and human rights organizations. Sorry, I laugh because it's like, oh my gosh, never just do the thing. You have to do the, Polly's always doing the thing 10 times better than anyone anticipated. Thurgood Marshall kept a stack of this 746 page book in and around offices of the NAACP and called it quote, the Bible of Brown v. Board of Education. In this way, to Murray's immense gratification, the book ultimately did help render segregation laws obsolete, right? So again, in addition to the paper that they wrote at Howard, this extensive book that outlined segregation laws across the U.S. um, helped 
the team, the NAACP's team, legal team, who fought Brown v. Board to ultimately overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. Crazy, right? I just, what else can you say? I mean, this is a career that is beyond prolific. And I, I did never knew about this until I did this research for this episode. In 1956, they were hired by a New York law firm. And this was actually a good job, right? A more lucrative job, lucrative job. But Murray did not particularly feel at home there, partly because of its 60 some attorneys. They were the only African-American and only one of three women uh, attorneys staffed. And that was in 56. So in 1960, um, they ended up choosing to leave corporate litigation um, and they moved to Ghana and they taught for a short time at the Ghana School of Law. 1960, they arrive in Ghana and they learn in Ghana about the Greensboro sit-in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Murray, who has been fighting tirelessly in the U.S. for decades to end racial segregation in the South and end Jim Crow, once this movement really starts to get underway, um, when four anti-students sit at the Woolworth lunch counter and um, continue kind of start the spread of sit-ins across the South, um, they're in Ghana. And I think that that had kind of an upsetting experience for them, right? That they had been working so hard and now they were thousands of miles away. They ultimately chose to return sooner than they had expected expected. Also, there was some discussion I read about that because Ghana was also experiencing at this time, right, I'm not going to go into it, but this is also a time of African independence and um, which could lead to colonization. Thank you so much. And so this is a time where also Ghana was experiencing some issues around dictatorship and things that that they were not happy with and did not feel at home. Um, and so they chose to move to come back to the U.S. So now we're around 63, right? So 63, 1963, March on Washington happens, right? I don't know if you know this, but very few Black women were asked to participate as leaders and speakers at the March on Washington, right? I do think I heard that at yes. some point. I'm sure you have. And so the there was one uh, Black woman speaker who got a very short period at a mic, but the most visible Black women's voices at the March on Washington were singers, right? People who were mostly gospel singers, right? This is an important narrative that was happening in the civil rights movement, right? That women were highly participatory in the movement, but were rarely given opportunities to be leaders, right? That they were the organizers, they were doing the behind the scenes work that is absolutely crucial to the success of a movement, but then getting almost no recognition, which also meant that issues relating to the sexism that they were experiencing were not being highlighted in the agendas that were being built, right? That's like the 
a lot of people know about the Greensboro Four and the Carolina A&T, but I don't know. Nobody knows about what those women at Bennett were doing. The Bennett Bells. Mm -hmm. That would be another great story, right? The Bennett Bells were doing really important work. And we're trying to organize it before the A&T men created the the sit-in. Yeah, absolutely. Or sparked the sit-in, I should say. Yes, absolutely. That's a great parallel story. So at this time, Murray participates in the creation of something called the National Council of Negro Women, which we're fighting to talk about and against the sexist oppression of Black women, both within the movement and then also just in America, right? So this, again, speaks to Murray's discussion of Jane Crow, right? They're fighting not only racism, but sexism, right? So they're prolific as both a civil rights African-American leader, but also a feminist leader, right? read a biography of, now I can't remember her name, but it was a similar sort of thing. Uh, she was very involved in the movement, but she was so aggravated because it, these men always expected her to just be the secretary. So never actually to be the face and kind of get out in front, it was more about, you know, make sure that you're taking the notes and doing the filing and getting everyone the coffee. I think you're talking about Ella Baker. I am! That's right, Ella Baker. That's right. Yeah, Ella Baker, there's a great book by Barbara Ramsey about that's Ella Baker. That's the one. Yes, yeah. that's the one. And so anyway, the point was is that she had the same sorts of complaints that the civil rights movement, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but her complaint was that it was sexist, that they were allowing women to take part, but they weren't really allowing women to take part. Or at least to lead, right? Well, they that's were, kind of what I meant by yeah. by take part is, yeah. you know, again, yeah. like do the back the back room stuff. Yeah. You're not, you're not the face of the, the movement or whatever. Yeah. And Ella Baker famously really called out Martin Luther King Jr. for yeah. participating in this and the SCLC. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's another good episode idea. So... As I mentioned, Murray's also participating in the women's movement. Now we're in the 60s, and we're seeing the feminist movement kind of rise during this time period, right? So Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystique, which is often, and I would say incorrectly, considered kind of the origins of the feminist movement. Yeah, sure. Whose feminist movement? Absolutely. And so, but... It does lead to a huge amount of discussion amongst American women about issues around sexism, and Murray wants to participate in this. So for the next 10 years, Murray spends much of their time trying to advance in every way they could from arguing sexist discrimination cases to serving on President Kennedy's newly created Presidential Commission on the Status of Women in 1965. Frustrated with how the feminist movement was not making a lot of progress, <laughs> uh, they proposed during a speech that women should organize a march on Washington, similar to the march on Washington that happened in 63. That suggestion was not taken that seriously by some of the other leaders. So Murray ultimately made a phone call to Betty Friedan, who at the time was probably the most famous feminist in America. And Murray told Friedan that they believed it was time to organize essentially an NAACP for women. So in June of 66, during a conference on women's rights in Washington, D.C., Murray and a dozen or so others convened with Friedan and launched the National Organization for Women, also known as NOW. 
I didn't know that they were part of now. Right. I mean, this is a nut. I mean, now for all its problems, now is maybe the most well-known women's organization in this country. Murray was there at the beginning and potentially even sparked the idea by making this call to Ferdan. That's fascinating because you always just associate now with white women. Well, okay, exactly. And let me tell you why. Because despite this incredible origin story, now really failed at creating an agenda, a feminist agenda that spoke to the needs of all women. At the time, Murray was really pushing now to create an agenda that included issues around race and issues around class and poverty. And Friedan and other leading white feminists at the time did not do that. Murray and Friedan knew each other, right? Murray was telling Friedan, you need to include issues around race and poverty in this organization's agenda. And by refusing to do that, in some ways it shows not ignorance, right? Not this, I don't understand, or I'm unaware of issues outside of white women's issues. It shows kind of a refusal to do that, right? This idea that white women were thinking, well, if we're going to make change, we have to do it in small ways. And so they were not choosing to make agendas that ask for massive changes, right? And in doing so, really failed to make changes for anyone but themselves, unfortunately. So ultimately, this does lead Murray to leave now. And you were right at the very beginning because you said, oh, I always associated now with white women. Well, the history of now then does become overwhelmingly white. And I will say this, even when now becomes aware of the fact that their membership is overwhelmingly white, they do very little to try to actually speak to a wider audience of women. And so it's kind of interesting that now has this multiracial origin story because it's not what the organization became. That I think that's why that early history of it somewhat gets forgotten, right? And I've talked to many people who had no idea that Polly Murray was a founding member of NOW, um, including <laughs> myself. So in the 1960s and 1970s, Murray becomes a professor of American Studies at Brandeis University, where they taught some of the first courses in women's history in the U.S. And they go on to have students that then become prolific women's studies scholars, which is also like super cool and interesting. But anyway, so they're really also part of the founding of women's studies and, and women's scholarship, scholarship around women's studies, I should say. I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit here. So at the very beginning, I mentioned that Murray struggled with their gender identity. So I'm going to talk just briefly about what that looked like for them during their lifetime. But I think there's so much more that can be done around this topic. And only scholars are only very beginning to kind of scratch the surface of this history. And it'll be really interesting to see how scholars continue to kind of interpret this component of Murray's life. So Murray felt like a male based on a lot of evidence that we have they dressed in male clothes. 
they also look to science to try to explain their kind of gender identity or gender dysphoria. They've researched hormones and they sought out medical professionals. They even convinced a doctor to surgically explore if they had male organs or other signs that Murray was a pseudo-hermaphrodite, which is a term that was used during this time period. What we can take away from that is that Murray experienced serious gender dysphoria, right? That they did not feel like they were born in, in the gender that they were meant to be, right? Which if we look at that, that is very similar to how we hear about trans people talking about their experience with their own gender. I had a conversation with one of my classes this year about this because I actually asked them, like, what should I be calling, how should I be referring to Polly Murray in terms of their pronoun? Because as I mentioned, most of the scholarship around them is still referring to her as she and her um, instead of using the they, them pronouns. And one of the things that just came out of that conversation was how exciting it is that there is somebody from history that they can kind of talk about with this, right? Because so much of this had to be hidden in history that while we know that these experiences exist, it's very hard for us to find them, right? And with Polly Murray, we do have evidence of them really seeking out professionals to try to help them understand this experience that they were having, which can kind of give us a sense of that history existing. And then I'm hoping that I think we'll be able to find more of this as we continue to dig and as scholarship around trans studies becomes more prominent. But I think Polly Murray is a great example of this, right? But I also think that it's it's pretty heartbreaking, right? You talked about earlier how hard they worked in school and having to um, fight against discrimination to then not find a job and all i mean imagine also layering this on top of that right like this tremendous amount of dissatisfaction with their own identity so much so that they're pretty open with it in terms of i i don't know if open is the right word but in terms of seeking out answers right by going to medical professionals i think there's a lot more to be discussed and uncovered around this history, and I think it's exciting. Additionally, I do want to say too that Murray spent many years partnered with a woman, Irene Barlow, um, and some people even called Irene Barlow Murray's life partner. Shortly after Barlow's death, Murray has a totally new transition in their life. After Barlow's death, Murray resigns from their post and enters New York's General Theological Seminary to become Episcopal priest. Did you know this? I did read that, yeah. So cool, right? So not surprisingly, Murray um, actually seeks out a position that is unavailable to them within the Episcopal Church. So the Episcopal Church did not ordain women at the time when they started their seminary training. But um, while they were still in divinity school, the church's general convention voted to change that policy effectively on January 1st, 1977, three weeks after Murray completed their coursework. On January 8th, in a ceremony in the National Cathedral, Murray became the first African-American woman to be vested as an Episcopal priest. 
A month later, Murray administered their first Eucharist at the Chapel of the Cross, which is the little church in North Carolina where more than a century earlier, a priest had baptized Murray's grandmother, Cornelia, when they were still a baby and still a slave. Kind of amazing, right? Wow, full circle. Full circle. So at the end of Murray's life, they do this other complete transition, right? They look to the church as a way to create change in the world. They kind of leave academia behind. They leave their legal career behind. And they utilize the church as a way to create change in the world. On July 1st, 1985, Murray died of pancreatic cancer in the house that she owned with a lifelong friend in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. An incredible life. It is an incredible life. Yeah. A lot of transformations and I don't know. I still just think, you know, bold. This person I know. was incredibly bold. Yeah. And, and I also think fearless in some ways or never feeling confined by societal restraints, right? Setting out to do things that were seemingly impossible. That's the end of this portion for me. Well, the next section, I will give you my final thoughts. I look forward to it. Excellent. Polly Murray is often left out of histories exploring the civil rights and feminist movements. After hearing about their incredible contributions to these social justice movements today, you may wonder, how could this be? I think Polly Murray's development of Jane Crow can help us understand how they are often overlooked. When discussing the civil rights movement, historians often focus their attention on male leaders like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, for example. Further, historians typically link the feminist movement to white women leaders like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem. Both of these examples show historians' failure to center intersectionality in their approaches to these historical topics, and this failure often leads figures like Polly Murray to be forgotten. But by leaving Murray out of these stories, we are losing important nuances. Murray's life and career demonstrates the realities of both race-based and gender discrimination. For example, Murray was not admitted to the University of North Carolina based on their race, and was also denied admission to Harvard because of their sex. This positionality forced them to struggle against systematically racist and sexist institutions strategically. Hence, they used an assortment of tactics. Murray performed direct action when they refused to give up their seat on a racially segregated bus. They used their tremendous writing skills when constructing letters to politicians pointing out injustices. They employed their legal training to show that segregation created a sense of inferiority. And they collaborated with other activists to establish one of the most eminent women's organizations in the U.S. Their efforts had lasting effects on these social movements and, more broadly, the U.S. 
I hope that this episode gives you a sense of the need to include Murray in these historical narratives. And as we see trends in the discipline shift towards centering marginalized populations, I do believe Murray will be more prominently featured in the stories we tell. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.